The Dave Berta Podcast is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, powered by ATB. Find out more about the network and other amazing Alberta-made podcasts at albertapodcastnetwork.com. I'm Dave Cornway. I'm Ryan Hassman. And I'm Kristen Rayworth. And you're listening to the Dave Berta Podcast. We're recording this episode on November 17th, 2018, and we're also joined by our producer, Adam Rosenhart. Hey, girl. <laughs> this <laughs> we're already off the rails, Dave. <laughs> it's a good start. Uh, this episode, we'll discuss John Carpe's controversial speech tying pride flags to Nazi swastikas and Soviet hammers and sickles, and how UCP leader Jason Kenney has and hasn't reacted to his comments. Newly independent... Calgary East MLA Robin Luff and the plight of disgruntled government backbenchers and new municipal election finance laws introduced by Municipal Affairs Minister Shay Anderson. And his beard. And, and, and Shay Anderson's beard. And of course, the latest nomination candidate news. But first, we are thrilled to welcome... Kristen Rayworth to the podcast. Welcome, Thank you Kristen. for having me. Yeah, it's great to have you. A uh, bit of a trigger warning. We are going to be talking about um, sexual assault, potentially sexual violence in our interview with Kristen. So uh, if if that makes you uncomfortable, um, you can scrub through the pod. I don't know, maybe about 20 or 30 minutes and you'll be free and clear. So first off, uh, we wanted to ask you a very important question. You drove on the QE2 for the first time this past week. I did, yeah. What was that like? And can you make a political metaphor out of your experience? Well, I did it listening to uh, Highway to the Danger Zone. <laughs> so That's it just good. like inspired me. Kenny to, Loggins there. Exactly. Like just I felt very Tom Cruise-esque, but like without the cult component. So that was great. Um, in terms of a political metaphor, I think it's about you know, you have a goal and you have somewhere that you want to go. And oftentimes there's a lot that kind of gets in that way. And sometimes you have to switch lanes. Sometimes you have to change the way that you approach something, but you still have that goal. And it's about getting there regardless of what kind of gets in your way. Wow. I would have just told me to fuck off by asking that stupid <laughs> question. I, well, I was going to say, then you hit a patch of black ice. <laughs> you're just driving along, you're leading in the poles and all of a sudden you hit ice and you spin out and you're facing the wrong way upside down. And it's like, what? just happened so is this a metaphor which which political leader is this a metaphor for is this is this allison redford is this uh take your pick yeah yeah yeah, yeah. any 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 of the dumpster fires in recent recent history probably well they say politics only ever ends in tears so maybe inevitably it's all of them yeah we always hit black ice eventually it's it's yeah. it's inevitable now on this on this show we've talked a lot about women in politics mm-hmm. and and that's a big part of what what you talk about i think i might know the answer to this already but in your mind, are, are things, are, are politics getting any better for women out there? Um, you know, it's funny when I was reading the question, thinking about the question earlier, you look at, I think it was 2013 when they did that photo of all the premiers and it was six women. And now if you look in 2018, it's one. So, I mean, in terms of political representation, I don't think you see the same level of female representation, even federally. Like you look, the conservatives have had 1.5, if you count Rona Ambrose as interim leaders, female leaders. The NDP have had two. The Liberal Party have had none uh, in terms of federal leadership. But they have feminists, avowed feminists. That's a thing. But you have to back that up with action. But I think Mm -hmm. it's also about what uh, women are sort of given 
authority to speak about. Like when you look at a lot of women who, who are political or political leaning, even on Twitter, they're given a lot of room to talk about social issues, but you don't give women a lot of room and a lot of authority sometimes to speak on economic issues or speak about labor issues or speak about all these other different things all of which are important to women. And so I think that has a big impact on women wanting to get involved in politics because sometimes you don't want to talk about daycare. You want to talk about our oil prices and what that means to you. And and that's, I think, a huge switch is what we need to do is give women room to be to speak in those arenas as well. And I mean, of course, also the other big issue I think that women face, political women in any stripe, is the level of stuff you get online yeah, which prevents you from wanting to talk about it, period. When it seems like it is more harsh to women. Mm-hmm. Like the, I, Dave and I and Adam, we probably catch our share of heat and, you know, attacks and stuff on Twitter, but nobody ever calls me chubby or makes fun of my scraggly beard or any like physical appearance comments ever mm-hmm. or any of that kind of stuff. The only place I've experienced that is on YouTube. <laughs> and, I, and I actually think that's because the demographic on YouTube is predominantly teenagers. Right. And they don't know how to form yeah. an argument. But what I see on, on platforms like Twitter are adult men saying exactly the same things that a kid that's 13 years old would say to a woman. But it's also right. not just men. And I think that's important is that when we talk about this, we often say, okay, well, it's men who are targeting women online. Mm. But women target each other and police each other. For example, when you look at conservative women who come out and talk about their perspectives, whether or not it's a fairly social conservative perspective or whatever it is, if it does not meet the standard, then they get called out because as a woman, you're supposed to believe certain things. And if you don't, you open yourself up to a whole other string of attacks. Yeah, it happened this week. I saw Christine Maia was responding to someone who said, I think it was the UCP and all conservative parties are awful towards women. And she was like, well, I'm a woman and who are you to say that? And, you know, it's funny because when I see conversations like that, I just back right away Mm -hmm. because I don't know what else to do. But it seems like it is different. I mean, even we've, I think we've even spoke about on the pod how the premier, as opposed to Jason Kenney, people will make the comments about her appearance. Yeah. I couldn't tell you the suit cut or color or skin or haircut of any male leader ever. Like I, at no point has anyone ever said, man, Andrew Shear's starting to look tired. But and women do the, the, get yeah. that. And yeah. it's been constant. Like if you look back at even, I remember a leadership debate with Alexa McDonough when she was the NDP leader mm-hmm. and she was wearing orange and she was wearing an orange suit. And the next day, all they reported on was what she was wearing, not the content of anything she said in the leadership debate. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a, I mean, it's a massive, it's a, it is a massive double standard in politics in general. Um, I mean, I think about, I mean, when we were, I mean, kind of not talking about Alberta politics, but something that's been in, 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 in getting a lot of political, got a lot of political, political attention last month. Um, the, the cab, Brett Kavanaugh hearings in the United States. And you think about, I think we might have talked about this on a previous podcast, but you, you look at, um, I'm trying to remember her name, Dr. Christine Blasey Ford. Blasey Ford. Okay. I couldn't remember her, the second name, Christine Blasey Ford. Um, and how she acted compared to how Brett Kavanaugh acted. And when you, when you, if you think, I mean, thinking about how, Brett Kavanaugh acted and the reaction to him from the, the media coverage and the commentary was, oh, he was defensive. He was, you know, he was fighting back. Whereas, you know, if, if, if that would have been a woman sitting in his position in, in that chair mm-hmm. and acting the same way, it would have been, oh, she was shrill. She was emotional. She was, you know, out of control. Like I, I, I have no doubt that that would have been the coverage. And I think that's just this, this, 
awful double standard we have in politics that how we how we we comment and treat women in politics compared to treating men in politics and yeah. and I think I mean there's so there's there's that which I think is is real uh, and then I think and I mean I think it's and I think it's a problem that uh, you know that 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 women will face online and on social media but in in general I think that social media like social media in general is kind of a dumpster fire um, and I think women in particular face challenges that men don't face but I was listening to um, one of the most recent um, podcasts that Ezra Klein put out. Um, if you guys don't listen to the Ezra Klein show on Vox, I would definitely highly recommend you do because it's, it's very interesting and insightful stuff. But he was talking about um, social media and how he's really, really rolled back his engagements on social media. And he talked about how it's I mean something that really resonated to me is how agitated and aggravated you get you know as soon as you turn on twitter as soon as you look at your facebook feed but this but but the network is designed to get those kind of reactions mm -hmm. and it's almost designed to pull out the worst in people you know it's designed for the for the cheap shots and the the quick reactions which are like which is just like gutter politics for the most part mm -hmm. um so I, I mean i can say me personally i've because it makes me feel that way every time i i go onto twitter uh and see you know the Unite Alberta account arguing with someone for some particular reason. Uh, someone's paid to do this. Um, uh, I, I've really d dialed back the amount of time I spend on Twitter and the amount of time I spend engaging because of that. Um, and I'm a, I'm a, you know, a white male, like mm -hmm. pe pe people don't call me out for stuff like, you know. Yeah. But you haven't, you haven't stopped engaging. No. So, I mean, I, that's inspiring to me because I, I how do you have the energy to do it? Why do it at all? Why is it important to you? So for me, um, so in addition to, you know, I talk about sexual violence a lot. I mean, I was sexually assaulted three and a half years ago by one of my closest friends. And after that, I was abandoned and isolated by the closest people to me, um, abandoned by the institutions that were supposed to protect me and not supported by a society that's supposed to call that stuff out. So to me when I go online and I talk about this stuff and I engage people in that, for me, it's ensuring that I am making space for other survivors so that their friends will understand the language that they're supposed to use and the way to approach someone who's been sexually assaulted, that we are working and pressuring our political institutions to strengthen the police, to strengthen the health system, to strengthen all of those things, and that we're working towards hopefully a society that calls this out and doesn't normalize sexually aggressive behavior. But in, in doing this... Mm -hmm. uh, you're like a human shield aren't you like don't you attract terrible comments from idiots and and like how is that taking its toll on you i mean yeah absolutely i do like i get i get a significant amount of garbage but i also get people i've i get reached out to almost daily by people who are experiencing this and to me every time that i can make one person feel less alone that it's worth it. Like that wow. makes it worth it. And that makes the whole experience and all the crappy stuff a hundred percent worth it to know that whether it's one person or two people or whoever that they feel. And even if someone doesn't reach out to me, but just sees the stuff I'm saying yeah, and sure. feels less alone because of it, to me, it's worth it. I can see that. Yeah. Wow. So let's talk a little bit about party policy around mm -hmm. things like sexual assault, sexual harassment, sexual violence, and even LGBTQ rights, because I do think that the Venn diagram is overlapping there. Mm -hmm. In your opinion, Kristen, who is who is doing these kinds of policies, doing these kinds of policies? Who's drafting these kinds of policies positively? Who's doing it well? 
Well, first off, I think one of the most important things around this, and there has been really good policy that's come out in the last few years. There's been an increase in funding for sexual assault centers. There's been the announcement around the Alberta's commitment to end sexual violence, and those are two really great things. However, when you look at every single one of those announcements, the face of those announcements are white female survivors. Mm. So that is a huge issue in that we are not working, the current government or anyone really working to empower the voices of female survivors who are people of color or indigenous people or giving voices to male survivors. So yeah, you can have and do great policy, but you need to be inclusive in the way you have those conversations. And that currently is not happening to the level that it should be. Across parties. You, yeah. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> you did dodge the question about who's doing it well and who it's, needs to do No, better. I mean, it's, you know, I'm, I'm very happy with, with some of the stuff that's been brought in by the NDP government, 100%. I think they've done a really good job of addressing those big ticket things, but a lot of the issues that need to get resolved in order to actually make survivors' experiences better are not those big ticket sexy announcement type things. It's changes to the Police Act. It's changes to the Health Act. It's ensuring that we are, you know, doing those little things within community and making sure that rural Albertans have access to mental health supports is those things that don't actually make for a great announcement that are not being done. So I will absolutely give the NDP government credit for the work that they've done because it's been great, but there's those other things and substantive changes that need to also be done. So I I was just going to ask, in your opinion, or sorry, to paraphrase perhaps, the NDP's done a good job, but they've gone after the low-hanging fruit in a way. Because you're talking about police policy, health policy, really unsexy, wonkish work. Yes. But that is absolutely critical. Yeah, absolutely. Great. So speaking of the kind of the 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 policy, I mean, the the policy wonk kind of thing, kind of stuff that we just we just talked about, Adam just referenced. What what do you think it's going to take to push government to make to move to to deal with and to address those issues that may not get the great media hits that that other stuff would yeah every person listening to this podcast can do that and actually getting people engaged in those conversations and Mm -hmm. making this issue matter to people so that it's a platform issue in the next election both provincially and federally and pushing those changes and making sure that when we do introduce legislation that it has teeth because even when we're talking about the gsa legislation there's lacking in teeth in terms of the way that that is brought forward and the way that they can actually ensure that schools are going by the rules that they've put in place. It's the same thing with the sexual harassment rules that the NDP have recently brought in for the service industry. There's absolutely no teeth connected to that. And that won't happen until everybody pushes that to happen and until actually it matters. So you're talking about calling your MLA or, or bringing the issue up with a candidate who's yep. knocking on your door? Yeah. And yep. ask them what their platform position is on sexual harassment and sexual violence. No, for, for someone who, for one of our listeners who might want to learn more about, you know, what they can do or l- learn more about the issues, do you have any recommended resources like any place online where people can find more information so there's a provincial organization uh they're called the alberta association of sexual assault services so they're the overarching umbrella organization for all the sexual assault centers across the province and their website is the absolute best place to go and do you remember what the website is it is asas i'm not aasas dot ca okay and we'll put a link to it on the uh please do with on the site so with regard to specific legislation at the municipal level um, I don't know if you've given it any thought, but I know that the city of Edmonton has been dealing with a large harassment issue. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure how much of that is sexual harassment or how the two in the workplace are actually related or different. Mm-hmm. But, you know, when you're dealing with 
nuts and bolts administrative issues. What sort of changes would you like to see? I know you've called for the parties to govern themselves internally with sexual mm-hmm. harassment um, mechanisms. Mm-hmm. So, like, what specifically? Because the point you made earlier about how you make safe space or brave spaces for people to come forward is an interesting one. But I think maybe they need formal mechanisms beyond just brave people who will take the arrows. 100%. You know, we've got an ombudsman culture. We've got whistleblower legislation. Is it something like that? It's as simple as having a sexual harassment policy and posting it. So for the city of Edmonton, as an example, ensuring that every single one of their staff know where that is, not just that they're told about that their first day and then they never see it again. It's making sure that it's there and it's calling the city and other city related organizations to account to make sure that they're following those policies. Because even if you look at our provincial parties, I don't know where any of our provincial parties have their internal sexual harassment policies posted. And so that's the base, most simple thing is to know that when you're getting involved with the city of Edmonton, if you're going to go work there, that you know what your rights are. And that also that those harassment policies are vetted by specialists. They aren't just written by that organization or that political group, but that they have mechanisms in place again to give it teeth. So if someone comes forward, they're not just going to get a sort of like a pat on the back and we're sorry you went through that and then that's it. And that's what's been happening historically at the city. And so that's something else that really needs to change. So the three of us, and we've said this to previous guests before, you know, you're talking to three white, straight dudes. Um, what can we do, you know, beyond obviously hosting on the show, which were, is easy. Mm-hmm. What, what would you recommend to people like us to, I guess, develop more empathy, more awareness, and just actually help? I mean, one of the first things <clears throat> that I say when people ask me that is it's just about believing people and supporting the people in your life. And that, that seems like a simplistic answer, but it's really, really, really meaningful to create space where if someone comes forward to you or talks about their experiences that they know they're going to be believed and be supported. And then the other part is about policing the people around you and calling to account the people around you, especially because you are three men, like the men in your lives and ensuring that when they act inappropriately or catcall or what, that, that that is something that you call out immediately. And the other part again is just putting that pressure on there, educating yourselves around sexual violence and putting the pressure in the spheres of influence that you have to ensure that going forward, we do see sexual violence as a platform issue, that this isn't just one year of me too and people talked about it and now it's done, that we actually start pushing our political leaders to, to make this an issue that matters to them. I was just going to talk about the evolution from like the Gamergate stuff, which then evolved into basically like the alt-right with a branch down to the incel movement. And then you think about they normalized this hypersexualization and like degrading behavior that wasn't okay in the real world, but they brought it online first. And then there's these entire communities and they, I don't know the solution. A lot of them don't interact with female people ever. And except for in like the most sort of aggressive, ridiculous way. But the culture of like waiting till it's waiting till they're an incel or whatever, Mm -hmm. an alt-right person, it seems like it's too late. Like maybe we have to start when, when they're children, like my kids are six Mm -hmm. and eight. Six and seven, and like <laughs> you know, the, I, someone someone articulated the discussion about consent once really well. That it's like tea or a cookie. Oh yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Just because you wanted it once, you don't want it all the time. Yeah. And like consent is even a hard thing to wrestle with as a parent because sometimes I make my kids go give grandma and grandpa a hug, 
and I'm not interested in them saying no. But then as I'm exposed to other thought about stuff like that, you also want to teach them that they are in control of them themselves. So I don't know if there's easy solutions, but we see the chair, the chain to where it ends up becoming violent. Mm -hmm. And it's like, what that point, I don't even have a clue how to address it, but I would love to know what we can do. And like, you gave some good suggestions. So it's something to chew on. And like with a lot of our topics, I feel like I live in this comfort bubble. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Like I've never catcalled anyone. The thought of doing that, I just, I can't imagine. (laughs) Like I've never even really seen it. But I'm not doubting that it happens. I just live in this, you know, but I, in talking to Leanne, like she was telling me about how if she has to walk across a parkade late at night, she is worried. Mm-hmm. I'm like, really? That's yeah. weird. I have never not walked across anywhere. Yeah. Because I'm 6'4 and mm-hmm. whatever. I'm not tough at all, but I guess like I don't worry about it. So just things like that, like being aware, you know, the city back to urban um, the urban issue. I know the city puts in more lights in public spaces. Like there's a role for all sorts of different industries to look at mm-hmm. this stuff. So, well, and I think it's because, I mean, sexual violence exists on a spectrum. Like when we talk about, about the issue, it doesn't just start with sexual assault and it starts with harassment. It starts with objectifying women. It starts with all those things that you talked about. And we're talking about Gamergate and all those things. That's where there's a huge space for men to police each other, like I said before, and also to to try to encourage people who are in those zones because you don't you don't act like those guys in Gamergate if you're not struggling with something within yourself. If there isn't something inside of you that need you need help and you need support, mm-hmm. and so at that end of the spectrum, there is a need to sort of step in and start talking about mental health for men mm-hmm. and and what that looks like and how we can better support men to be able to talk about their feelings and talk about where they're at and what's causing that behavior. Because if we did that and we worked really hard at that part of the spectrum, I think you would see a lot of people not necessarily move towards the more aggressive acts that we've talked about too. Yeah, I think it I think it behooves men to 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 self-police. You know, I think the easy answer, Ryan, to your question is teachers and parents need to do a better job. But like, I don't have kids and never will. But when I'm out in the world and I see that behavior, I have to call it out. And I I don't want to sound like a shill, um, but there's an an Alberta podcast network show called the Modern Manhood Podcast. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And Herman Vijegas does this fabulous job of of talking about toxic masculinity and, and the ways in which men have to take responsibility for that. No one's Mm going to solve that problem for us. And the victims of the problem are women. And so if if not always, not always, no, that's right. Um, But, uh, but in many cases, at Mm -hmm. least we see a lot of that. So, you know, there's organizations like the Wolfpack next gen men Mm -hmm. that are trying to teach young men how to be better and, and how to deal with these raw feelings they experience, which they don't, right. you know. And we had Jamil on talking. Yeah. Exactly, yep. exactly. So, so I, I'm, I'm hopeful that mm-hmm. at least we're recognizing this, and I know it's not going to change overnight. But with enough of us talking about this, it gives me a lot of hope. I'm just going to jump on one thing you said, and then we can. Yeah, please do. Um, when you talk about terms like toxic masculinity, I think what we always really need to be conscientious of, and I was talking to Dave about this a little bit earlier. So over the last two days, I've been in Edmonton and Calgary talking to oil and gas forestry industry folks for work. And I look at, at a lot of these men who are in a very big position to, to, to make a difference around some of this stuff. And these are people who are struggling right now and struggling to put food on the table, worried about their jobs. And a term like toxic masculinity immediately stops them from wanting to have that conversation. It's a trigger that, word for it's, it's Well, they don't even know what it means. You're right. not really having that conversation in language. You're preaching to the converted and you're using language that 
is not um, approachable mm-hmm. for a lot of folks. So sometimes we need to really think about the audience that we're talking to and bringing other Absolutely. people into this conversation in a way that doesn't immediately make people defensive. Yeah. Totally. And, and I imagine if I'd use on certain audiences words like feminism, it would be, it would be similar, right? Mm-hmm. Well, absolutely. absolutely. Even, yeah. even the word yeah. privilege. privilege. Yeah. 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 I mean, I have to be honest in the last two years, my comfort with that word or acceptance that it's a thing has evolved a lot Yeah, because nobody goes through life thinking that they have it easy. Like it's a hum- basic fundamental mm-hmm. human. Mm-hmm. But when you realize the systematic issues, the systematic <laughs> issues that you didn't earn, yeah. And that you have no control over. And for me, it was a very, very slow, and I'm still nowhere close. But I, I've said it on the show before. It yeah. was mostly watching Leanne and the world interact with her, realizing how I'm treated as a father and how she's treated as a mom. Yeah. One quick story, yeah. when I flew with Sam and he was three months old, um, and the airline attendants were all over me. Mm-hmm. Oh, you! first of all, you're a hero. Second of all, can we help? They moved me to my own row. They were coming and offering to hold them for me. Uh, one of them held them so I could go use the washroom. Whereas my understanding is, if you go on a plane as a ba- with the baby as a woman, they give you the 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 side. Same guy, right? Yeah. yeah. And I was just like, oh yeah, I'm a hero if I. <laughs> and just, yeah. but then you realize how much of that yeah. we have, and then I'm like, well, I need to do something with that. And so mm-hmm. I I think your comment about creating safe space or braver spaces is something that mm-hmm. we feel strongly about. Mm-hmm. And what else can I mean? Where else can we start? but there so yes. thank you for sharing that yeah. and yeah thank we'll, you for having me we'll put the uh, link to asas on the yes comments yep. and thanks a lot okay moving into our other uh topic for today is nomination news and updates so dave the man who keeps his finger on the pulse of nominations from coast to coast in this province what's what's happening what's new <laughs> from this the seas of saskatchewan to the the mountains yep. of the of british columbia those arbitrary lines driven dri- Drawn up by colonial leaders. Do you remember when we saw astronaut Dave Williams speak at the TELUS World of Science? I did. And he said the best part about being in space is there are no borders. Oh, that's poetic. Yeah. Trump would hate that. Yeah, he would. He would. Well, you can see the Great Wall of China from space. Actually, you can't, but that's a myth. I'm sure Trump believes it. Yeah. So I'm sure Trump thinks you'll see his Great Wall from (laughs) space as well. Well, you, you might not be able to see borders from space but we can definitely see electoral boundaries from this podcast <laughs> wow great we editing that out? And, yeah. no, no no we're keeping that in and uh and since our last episode there have been about a million uh nominations that have happened probably i think actually probably about 20 or 30 nominations that have happened so we're how not many gonna... contested nominations Dave? pardon me how many of those are contested uh well most of them i think most of them have been ucp nominations so most of them have been contested Indeed. Um, with the exception of a few, uh, but I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to go through, I'm not going to go through all of them. Um, you can check out, uh, the, the blog, uh, where I've been writing about them to, to catch up, but we do have a few, uh, that we want to mention here on the pod today. Uh, first of all, starting off, we are sitting here in the city of St. Albert in the constituent, the new constituency of St. Albert, which is ground zero mm-hmm. for contested NDP nomination races yes. in uh, in uh, in Alberta. Ground zero, patient one, patient yeah. zero. Yeah, this is it. The outbreak. This is it. Well, no, yeah. actually, this is this is this is the first one they're having. But there are two two contested NDP nominations so far. But, one in Calgary, one in here in Saint Albert, where two NDP yeah. MLAs, two incumbents, two incumbents are challenging each other uh, for the NDP nomination in the newly redrawn Saint Albert riding. Now. Uh, we have Trevor Horn, who represents the Spruce Grove St. Albert riding, which is being 
pretty much totally dismembered uh, and and dissolved into two or three other probably th- three or four other other ridings, uh, which all which all have NDP incumbents in them. Um, and that is weird, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And and Marie Renault, who is the current MLA for the current riding of Saint Albert, which is being redrawn a bit, uh, running for this nomination. It's exciting for the NDP. It's exciting for Alberta politics because we don't usually get two incumbent MLAs running against each other. Well, and maybe they heard of my mouthing off about how they're not having any nominations, so they decided to have one right where I live. It's all because of you, Ryan. It's all for you. It's nice to see you influencing politics on the left. Especially the NDP. Yeah. 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 They totally listen. They're finally listening. Yeah. Yeah. So this this is uh, going to be super interesting to watch. Judging from their Facebook posts, which you posted, Dave, Marie is kind of... uh, throwing some elbows there like her it wasn't very it wasn't written in an overly friendly way she reading between the lines i think she considers this to be her riding and i think she's a little bit annoyed that trevor's making her go through all this bother to actually go to the members which raises the question do they have members here do they does the ndp have members in st albert like how many? Oh, I don't know how many they have. I'm sure they do. I know Marie, Marie Renault has Someone a must have constituency her. association. Voters are different than yeah. members. Yeah. They did not have a contested nomination leading into 2015. No, no. But the, but they but they will uh, will on December 12th, 2018. It will be very interesting. And the UCP nomination here? Yep, happening later this week, right? This week, Thursday night. Uh, for any members listening, it's at the St. Albert Inn and Suites. Bring your government issue photo id <laughs> and now ryan you hosted a or you moderated a uh pan or a, a candidates forum for forum. ucp candidates here debate in is too strong of a yeah t- tell me a little bit about it what uh what were they what were the issues was was climate change denial on the docket <laughs> how many would they talk about did they give any numbers to how many nurses and teachers they're planning on laying off <laughs> well one of the things that's not really well articulated is our position on the carbon tax and so there was some confusion are we in favor of the carbon tax <laughs> I think we came out of that meeting deciding well, we're against the I'm glad tax. you've sorted that out. But I would have to I'd have to check my notes because it's unclear <laughs> to me. No, it was good. Um, we had four contestants. Um, one of them has run for mayor and in the last provincial election. The other one has run for a nomination previously. And then two people who were pretty much new. And a lot of energy. I mean, I'm going to descend into all the cliches here momentum is building but were you guys were you guys firing on all cylinders uh no we're just firing on three of them for now (laughs) (laughs) and you're driving a four-cylinder vehicle right but there was 120 people in the room oh wow that's pretty good some excitement i mean it's pretty rare that you do a nomination for a conservative party in alberta where basically the whole province is wide open because the other party holds all these seats Mm -hmm. like it's pretty rare occasion so it was good, and I'm looking forward to choosing our candidate here so they don't have to be neutral anymore, and I can just uh, get help them get out there on the doors and defeat Marie or Trevor. Because I'm the partisan hack of this group. <laughs> well, I'll, 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 be, I'll be cheering for, uh, for one of the two NDP MLAs, and we can have a, have a bit of a showdown. Which one would you choose time. if you had a vote? Uh, if, if I had a vote? Um, you know, I, I think... I, I like Marie Renault. I think she's done really, really well as an MLA. I think she's she's hardworking. I see her out doing stuff all the time. She seems, at least on social media, she seems to be posting photos of her in about the, in and about around the community. Um, Trevor Horn, I, I, I don't really know too, honestly know too much about what, uh, about his activities in, uh, in the Spruce Grove St. Albert writing. I know recently he held a, uh, he had a bit, got a bit of notoriety online. He held an anti-racism uh, forum workshop here in St. Albert, I think at the United Church. United Church on, uh, on the trail. And yeah. uh, a white supremacist showed up and then he kicked the right white supremacist out, which was the right call. 
Yeah. Um, and he got a bit of notoriety online for that. So, I mean, good, good for Trevor on that. But, but I think, I think I'd probably cast my vote for Marie Renault. Well, I might get myself in trouble here, but Kristen, Marie to me seems like one of those female politicians who likes calling out conservative female politicians for not being on team female enough. Is that a fair statement? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, she's she has also been an incredible advocate for the disabilities community, and she's really supported by that community because she's been very, very vocal and very supportive. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I think you, you do see that quite a bit in terms of calling out uh, UC, the two UCP current MLAs and then other people running for the nomination. Three. We have three now. Oh, yes, three. Yeah, sorry, three. Oh, yes, because wow. Leila Goodrich. Leila. Um, and I think... Layla. 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 Mm-hmm. I always screw that up. I don't know why. Well, they're both in. I get that yes. mixed up, too. But, and I think, you know, those are three women who put their names forward and have, and have done incredible, and I'm biased because Leela here is just, I just think she's the most incredible. I'm a big fan. Yeah, too. huge fan. You should have her on the show. You should have her on the show. But I think, so that's, that's unfortunate to me. And I think also some of the things that Marie does online, especially around calling out Jason Kenney on a daily basis around his funders and who funded his campaign. Like I tune out. Yeah, to I me, do too. And I, it's hard for me to be objective about that stuff, but she is a... 95% of the time attacking yeah. on social media. So, like, is that effect? Do you tune out, guys, when you're watching her? Yes. Yes, I do. I'm, and that I doesn't mean, do I, anything I for the constituents you're elected to actually take care of and support. They don't care. She clearly hates Jason Kenney. Like, yeah. That's obvious. My, my point of view on, on anything you do in social media is how are you adding value to the people who yeah. are yeah. following you? And the bickering on Twitter is pointless. It doesn't do anything. And both sides me. are guilty. Yeah. 100%. Uh-huh. Many yeah. sides, many sides. Many si- people on many sides. <laughs> yes. But... There, there, there are not fine people on many sides. <laughs> no, there are. Yeah, he had it wrong. He was right about many sides. You know, I, I, I agree with the comment you made earlier, Dave. I can't believe people get paid to do that. And it's elected people and unelected people. Either way, it's embarrassing. Yeah, and we, we've talked about on the pod before about how, you know, politicians act on social media and, and how... Uh, I mean, if, if it were up to me, cabinet ministers would not have access to their own personal Twitter accounts. It's just... they. Certain politicians in particular spend way too much time on social media. And you're not playing to any anyone other than your base. That's no, it, the thing. It's, it's such a waste of time. Yeah. Like, really. I can see, and you, you mentioned it earlier in this show, Dave. I can see why they do it. Even me. I have to admit, if I attack on Twitter, I get way more retweets and likes. And I can do, I mean, I know when I'm doing it. My yeah. When my the devil on my shoulder and the angel on the other shoulder, when I listen to the wrong one. Yeah. Um, and you get a bit of an endorphin hit and... Yeah. I mean, it can be addicting. And if you're a politician and you're in the trenches every day. So let's, uh, here's a question, Kristen. Are there any politicians, I mean, we mentioned Leela here. Um, who else is doing a really good job? On Twitter? Just being a politician in social media or not on social media. I mean, I think the ones who stay off of it are doing the best job. Uh, <laughs> hey Good answer. Um, but I think, you know, some of them do use their platforms for really good things. Like I, th- I would, I would, actually say that david shepherd uh 65 mm-hmm. percent of the time does an incredible job in We're terms david shepherd yeah yeah like he he talks about the things that matter and he talks about things in his community and like that guy is a machine like especially because he bikes everywhere in the winter like i don't know how he does like six or seven different events in one evening but he really commits to it and then when you go on social media it's positive stuff shay anderson does an incredible job online mm-hmm. like it's like he posts about puppies at least once a day and i really truly appreciate that and again leela here is another great example so you see those people who can use it for the positive and yeah, they'll 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 play the party stuff and they'll say what they need to say sometimes, but it really is about it's about your constituents. That's why you're elected. You're elected to support the people 
who put you where you are. And when you keep that in mind, I think that makes you a better politician regardless yeah. of what party mm-hmm. you're in. Yeah, mm-hmm. I think it should be a place to engage with constituents as long as they're, you know, they also are not being abusive or whatever. One of my favorite things in social media, just just sort of related to politics um, I work at ATB Financial. ATB supports the Alberta Podcast Network. Wait, so you work for ATB? Thank you, ATB. All, all my biases are showing. Um, but we release a daily economic uh, uh, newsletter called The Owl. And I know um, my favorite is when both parties, the UCP and the NDP, are like, see, mm-hmm. see, the economy <laughs> is either fucked or it's great mm-hmm. uh, because yeah. ATB said so. And they'll, they'll take turns each yeah. day playing it's, those. Yeah. It's so funny. Yeah. I love it. Well, this is Andrew Leach's big thing. And one of the things that I've t- talked to him about that's different about politics versus the academy is in academics, there are people who have career-long disputes over very small scientific details, like <laughs> the types of hairs on a spider's leg. There will be scientists who viciously hate each other and challenge each other their whole career. So the point I'm saying is like accuracy matters to a level of like sacred text. And in politics no matter what part you're talking about, things are just like true enough. Like true enough for an attack ad is mm-hmm. not the same as peer reviewed. And so when I watch, and I'm personal friends with Andrew Leach, but when I watch some of his frustrations, I think it's that, that he, the academics forget that in politics, true enough is close enough. Mm-hmm. And you know, the, the arguments are based in truth, but definitely built on that in a different direction. So you know, seeing them use the same economic stats to argue both sides of the argument is very much par for the course. That's what mm-hmm. politics is. Just to change course quickly, but I'm curious about the thoughts of you three, because we talked about online trolling and all that stuff. What are your thoughts on politicians blocking people? I, I, I can tell you. I have several people in my life, mostly when I ran, who were very, who went beyond the line, went, went past the fair is fair. Um, and I personally made a decision to not block them because I think that that is giving them so much satisfaction. Like, what do you teach your kids about bullies? Don't react, right? So there are some people in my life who I've been tempted to block, but I know if I block them, they win. So I can't believe politicians would block because it comes back to what Dave said. They shouldn't be on Twitter enough that they need to block it. Mm-hmm. So I don't think it's wrong. Like I wouldn't, I wouldn't make a law, but I think it's, Mm-hmm. dumb mm-hmm. and in terms of like if we're talking about twitter i mean i think the the you know facebook is one thing if you have if 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 you're an mla and you have your facebook page and someone's constantly posting inappropriate things because other then, people that, see it right? yeah because yeah. other people yeah. that's to, that makes sense block them that's totally totally fair game i mean on twitter it's my understanding that i haven't but i don't think i've actually ever blocked anybody or maybe a trolling account or something but um yeah. uh it's my understanding you can mute people yeah. yeah, and that exactly. might be yeah. that might be a better. And they never so, know. So then they're just talking yeah. to an empty space, and and you don't they don't get the satisfaction of knowing that you reacted poorly to them, mm-hmm. and then you never actually ever have to hear from them again. Because I mean, even if you block someone on Twitter, they can still see your stuff. They can without logging on, yeah. they can just go yeah. to your homepage and and see your what you're posting or or create a fake account or, or create a fake yeah. account. So you can't. I mean. You can't really escape it with 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 social networks like that. Yeah, I, I'm I'm similar to Dave. Like I, I think that if I were in politics, which I would never do because I'm not an idiot or crazy. No, I'm not a, not not an idiot. <laughs> Why are you all looking at me? <laughs> not I don't. Sorry, not an idiot. I just I think it would be I couldn't do it. I wouldn't be able to do it. Not, which is not, why he'd be the best I, politician. I'm the, I'm the idiot. But um, but uh, I would mute unless 
You know, it's interesting the United States Supreme Court was saying like mm-hmm. POTUS's account can't block people. And it actually happened mm-hmm. in Canada just recently. Was that, yeah, that's yeah. right. I remember mm-hmm. reading but, about that. But the president of the United States, there's a law saying anything he, he or she writes down is public record. Mm-hmm. It's like a great, it's like FOIP, but at a different scale. Yeah, but I think it's more like, you know, as everyone's a citizen. Everyone is a potential participant in democracy. No matter how much garbage or vitriol they sling, they they deserved. I'm using air quotes. They deserve to be heard. Um, I don't necessarily agree with that. Like if I'm Adam the politician, I think I should be able to do whatever the hell I want. But if I'm Adam the minister of agriculture, if there's an ag uh, Twitter account or Facebook page, I don't think they should be allowed to block anybody. Well, and like with a lot of things, there are already laws in place that deal with this. Yeah, if it's genuinely hate speech or inciting violence there's laws in place. and harassment no yeah. i should say my initial comment is also a place of privilege that i've never been on record um in, you know talking about a sexual uh, assault incident in my life so it's easy for me to say because the meanest thing that ever happens to me is duncan kinney picks on me so <laughs> it's like big deal and so, D- duncan is almost certainly listening to this so hey dude. Sh- shout out yeah. to duncan hey, and i i will never block him because I know he would love that. Yeah. So uh, even my comment, which I'm saying kind of tongue-in-cheek, is a reflection that I do have a privilege that I, I'm not a victim of, like, a serious situation. Mm-hmm. So if I was, or for anyone who else who is, yeah, block away. Block them all. Like, it's, I've done it a lot, and it's I'm glorious. Sure. Yeah. It's, it's a very good It feeling. must feel good. Mm. It does. It does, because then you're just like, nah, I don't it's, have to deal with this anymore. It's one of the reasons I don't really understand why people get so upset about the abuse on social media they can block people. I know you'll see that initial message, but mm-hmm. don't engage. Well, here's the yeah. thing about this predatory behavior that some men seem to like doing, sending direct messages and stuff. That's all on the record. Mm-hmm. Like catcalling someone or, I don't know, paying for a drink at a bar or something, you can you can deny it later. But when you're like DMing girls or young people of either gender, like that's a permanent, you're mm-hmm. putting the power back into there. It's amazing more guys aren't caught. And when the whole world has seen Anthony Weiner go down for showing his, <laughs> yeah, for showing his Weiner, yeah, it's like, how does this still happen? I don't know. People don't think about it. They're thinking with the wrong thing. Organ. Mm. Going back to nomination news, uh, briefly, we'll, we'll touch on a few. I think, um, three that I wanted to mention. Um, the first one I wanted to mention was I wanted to give a shout out to Cam Westhead, who was nominated as the NDP candidate in the new Banff Kananaskis riding. He's, Cam has been the MLA for Banff Cochrane since 2015. And uh, while Banff Kananaskis in that area might not be the most traditionally the most friendly NDP area in the province, um, I was, you know, it was, it was interesting to see that at his nomination meeting where he was acclaimed, he had a number of high profile municipal elected officials join mm-hmm. Um, and endorsed him, endorsed his nomination. Canmore Mayor John Borrowman was there uh, and had a glowing endorsement of, of, of Cam Westhead, as well as a number of uh, uh, Canmore Town Councillors and Banff Town Councillors. So, I mean, it's really interesting to see that, you know, even in, in rural areas, and I think that the mountain ridings are kind of are different. I mean, they are different than the kind of traditional mm-hmm. prairie rural conservative ridings, even though the mountain ridings have been conservative and have been conservative in the past. Um, I think it was pretty positive to see that, you know, someone like Cam Westhead, who ran in 2015 and probably didn't expect to win, but won in the in the orange wave, um, has turned out to be, you know, by the the testimonies of these uh, these local officials, a pretty a pretty good MLA and a pretty effective advocate in Edmonton. So I, I think it's really interesting. And, and Ryan and I were talking about this, um, I think over text message last week about how it really is interesting to see how 
a lot how some of the MLAs from who were elected in 2015 who didn't expect to on both sides of the aisle in in the former Wild Rose so now UCP caucus and in the NDP caucus how some of the 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 rookies who were elected in the waves um, some of them ended up being actually quite good MLAs and you know constituency issues and advocates for their for their local issues uh, and you know some of them haven't <laughs> but uh, but I think uh, I think Cam Westhead is an example of of an MLA who actually took the job pretty seriously and has worked hard and, and I think you see these endorsements from from the local local municipal officials as kind of a, a reflection of that. He's he is one of the more abrasive ones on social media though. Yeah. If you talk to the UCP caucus, oh, yeah. he's definitely not <laughs> one of their favorites. He d- d- definitely engages on social media for sure. He said something to me once and I was like, man, I'm not even well, I didn't even engage with him. Yeah. And then I realized he's an MLA. Yeah. I mean hey, weird. Whatever. Okay. Um the uh, the second uh, or another nomination, uh, n- another piece of nomination news. Edmonton Beverly Clairview this week. It was interesting. Jeffrey Walters or Jeffrey Waters, who was running for the UCP nomination mm. uh, in Edmonton Beverly Clairview, which I would say is probably a pretty safe NDP seat. The way they go, NDP seats go in Edmonton. Um, left the UCP nomination contest and is now I think he's been nominated as the Alberta Party candidate. There's been two now. Yeah, which is which was kind of a surprise. I don't really know. I know he's a real estate agent. I don't really know much about him. Um, but I thought that was that was kind of interesting news going well, from one conservative party to another conservative party. <laughs> I uh, don't accept that premise. But I well, will we're, say we're, we're, we're going to talk about another conservative who's running for the Alberta party in just a minute. But I will say, well, maybe the Alberta party said we'll nominate you without a contest. Maybe that was the case. He just wants to get on the ballot, perhaps. I don't know. I don't, I, know. I don't know. Um, Two conservative parties. In 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 in, uh, in 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 more news of uh, of conservatives running for the Alberta party, uh, <laughs> Catherine O'Neill, the former not only a conservative but the former president of the Progressive Conservative Party, a former star Progressive Conservative candidate from the 2015 election. And I think she listens to our show. And yeah, Catherine O'Neill, running for the Alberta party, nominated in Edmonton Riverview. So, early on when we were talking about that party that we can't never stop talking about. <laughs> Ryan's favorite topic My, is the Alberta I'm party. I'm just hoping to get in a nomination or something. Like, really? <laughs> I don't think they've nominated anybody in St. Albert yet. There so, you go. So, um, your, your dreams could be achieved. I think that this has always been a fault line of people who oppose Jason Kenney. And that's why, to this day, I'm convinced that in writings where it matters, in Edmonton, the Alberta party is not drawing from conservatives. They're drawing from the pool of people who hate Jason Kenney. That pool might be 50%, it might be 40%, it might be 60 But a vote for the Alberta party in Edmonton is a vote for the UCP, in my opinion. Because what is the distinction between them? They just can't stand Jason Kenney. So if you've got, let's call it 50% of the people in Edmonton Riverview, and 50% of them will never support Kenney. Well, thank you, Alberta party. Thank you, Catherine, because you just split that vote. That is tactically, that's how I see this rolling out. Now, maybe not in other communities, but that's why I chuckle when you call them the other conservative party because you could make that argument. There's a lot of PCs over there, but the fault well, line then is, they have fairly conservative policies. But the fault line is Jason Kenney. That's why Catherine O'Neill didn't. I mean, sorry, I shouldn't make it about her. That's why the whole crew of them didn't stay UCP. Had um, Doug Schweitzer won. I bet you they'd still be there. Yeah, but ATB would be 40% private. <laughs> <laughs> and and that would have a mater- materially negative effect on the province's balance sheet. Full disclosure, I work for ATB. <laughs> and they fund this show. Yeah. <laughs> that said, I think I think Catherine's a huge get 
for the party. Agreed. I think Agreed. that someone yeah. like Catherine, she's smart. She's she's really, really passionate. She's a known name, which is what the Alberta party is lacking in a significant amount of their nominations is a, is a, is a quote unquote star candidate. Yep. Yeah. I think that in that way, it's a huge get. I think when you have someone who inspires someone like Blaze Bomer to say something positive about you on Twitter and how great you are, th- that shows the power of someone like Catherine O'Neill yeah. that I think that she can bring people from both sides in, a, in an election where maybe they don't necessarily know which direction they want to go. Yeah. So, I'll, I, you know, for that, I mean, I, I like Catherine a lot. I think she's going to do a fantastic job. Mm-hmm, yeah. But they need to be getting more people like Catherine on the ballot and less people who are just no names in their community That's- because you can't. You can't go after, you can't be the third party and not be getting people like that on board. That has always been the Alberta party's problem. And, you know, God loves Stephen Mandel and, and what he's done, what he did for Edmonton. He's not the right star candidate. He just does, he's not known outside of Edmonton. I agree, Kristen. I actually think this changes my, like I've thought they have a 50% shot in two different ridings, in Calgary Elbow and in Edmonton McClung. And I actually think now this move, this changed the board. Yeah, I think it does too. You they, think so? They, it's it the, she's the perfect candidate and they're the right party for Riverview. There's not many places where the Alberta party is a real thing, mm-hmm. but Riverview is exactly they're, it. They're the natural governing party of Edmonton Riverview. They are, yeah. <laughs> I, I, don't know if the, I'd, I don't know if I'd go that red far. Tor- it's the most red Tory riding. That's true. I mean, maybe yeah. Glenora, but Glen- I mean, they're not going to be. But no but I, be Sarah but, but I I don't see any I don't see any evidence that the Alberta Party has momentum at all. I mean, they have they have sir they have Stephen Mandel as the leader. They have candidates no, I, like Catherine Neal. But I, I mean, show me fundraising. Show me polling. Show me oh, no, results no. in by election by elections. Show me anything. Well, I mean, and, and you know, fair enough. You could say, well, the NDP didn't do well ahead of the. You weren't doing fantastic ahead of the 2015 election. Like in terms of like yeah. people didn't think they were going to form government. But I just don't really see. Um, I don't really see any momentum on the Alberta party side. But I think that the more that we see politics just be the NDs and, and the UCP fighting each other and getting more and more dirty in the way that they're fighting each other, your average Albertan is not going to be relating to that and, and seeing it be like that. So there is there is that possibility where you're right. They haven't thus far capitalized on that. Well, in that but riding. they could yeah. but, I mean, in that you know, riding. But, but then they're counting on the, they're just counting on being in the right position if the two, if the two other parties implode. And I kind of get that. I mean, you see that in, from other, from other, other problems. I mean, we saw that in the 2015 election. Rachel Notley was really the right candidate at the right, the right leader at the right time. Yeah. You see it in, in British Columbia in in the early 90s when the Social Credit Party imploded and and the Liberals came through as the official opposition. They were kind of, um, I think it was Gordon. Was, I want to say okay, there was Gordon so, Campbell. No, there's so many. It was Gordon Wilson. I think there's a lot of Gordons in BC <laughs> politics. Um, it was yeah. just like he had his moment in, during the debate, and then all of a sudden his party won like 17 seats from nowhere. Yeah. So. But I don't know if they can really, I don't know if you can really count on that. I think there are probably more leaders who have been in the right spot at the wrong time than leaders who've been in the right spot at the right time to take advantage of those positions. Well, I can't believe, those shifts. I can't believe I'm going to be the Alberta party proponent here, but that particular riding is some of the wealthiest neighborhoods in Edmonton, you know, like Crestwood oh, yeah. area around it's the, the zoo. The area that elected Kevin Taft as the MLA exactly. it was a liberal riding for a number the of years. The federal liberals do well there because it's a prosperous red Tory seat like if there's I'm not saying they're going to win it but if there's a place where the Alberta party will do well I would have a hard time thinking of a better riding for them than there better than Elbow or McClung had they not had the high 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 profile candidates there yeah. so I guess I mean we'll see we'll see what uh, we'll see what happens but I'm not Joe, uh, the Joe Clark vote in, in Edmonton Riverview is pretty, strong that's yeah. how I know it'll do fine <laughs> 
The Dave Berta Podcast is brought to you by Otherwise, a really great podcast created under the auspices of the Ribbon Rouge Foundation. It's a variety show dedicated to empowering diverse communities living on Treaty 6 territory by sharing stories of their lived experiences. The team behind Otherwise is made up of artists, activists, youth, and civically engaged Edmontonians who want to highlight Edmonton's ethnic, linguistic, and cultural diversity and bring about positive social change. Among the hosts are Ahmed Nomadic, Edmonton's Poet Laureate, community builder Karen Tang, and Moranike Olaushebikan, founder of the Ribbon Rouge Foundation. Learn more and subscribe at otherwiseshow.com. The Dave Berta Podcast is brought to you by ATB Prosper. Whether you're saving for retirement, a major purchase, your child's education, or a rainy day, ATB Prosper helps you create a personalized investment plan to assist you in reaching your financial goals. It's easy to create, manage, and follow your progress through a customized digital dashboard. Start investing with as little as $100 and make additional contributions of as little as $25. For more information to get started saving today, visit atbprosper.com. All right, so we're going to do a bit of a lightning round with the rest of the topics because uh, because we're taking up a lot of time because uh, we're really enjoying our time with Kristen, so this is great. Um, let's start with the new municipal election finance laws that were introduced by Minister Sherry Anderson uh, this past week, I believe, uh, or a couple of weeks ago. A couple weeks ago, yeah, before the, before the session uh, broke. I think it's Bill 23. So what does it mean for people running uh, in municipal elections in Alberta, Dave? So there are a couple of things. First of all, it means that there's a $4,000 limit to the amount of amount that anybody can donate to a municipal candidate. So at, same as with the provincial laws. Yeah, same. So $4,000. Uh, it restricts donations to individuals. So no corporate or union donations in municipal election campaigns. That's the second big change. And the third one, which is, and I'm, there's, it's a big bill, so there's other things, but these are kind of the three things that are identified. The third one is, and this is kind of a strange one, is it creates a, it limits fundraising to the year of the election. So what it means is now we all know the next municipal election is going to be held in October of 2021. It limits for the fund meaning meaningful fundraising by candidates to start on January 1st, 2021. Is that a change? That's a change. Right now, candidates, anyone who wants to, if you decided, Ryan, that you wanted to run for mayor of St. Albert in 2021, you could go down to the city clerk's office and fill out a form that that gives that shows that you have the that you have the intention of running. And then once that paperwork has been filed with the city clerk, you can start fundraising. I don't now like you, this. Now no. you're limited to four thousand dollars a year, uh, but then you have to disclose your campaign contributions at the end of the end of end of the year. I don't like that change. So yeah, so right now it limits it to why, that. What is it? Why would they want? Well, I think the argument is to, and this is the argument that I don't really buy, but I think it's to, they, they're trying to level the playing field, right? So they're trying- developers are traditionally the ones who contribute the most. Yeah. Right? So so that so so that then and, and that's handled by getting rid of the. Uh, getting rid of the corporate donations because developers have a huge, are usually a massive, con massive contributors to, to municipal campaign, election campaigns. Um, so they're kind of mirroring the provincial, some of the provincial laws, provincial changes that they, the NDP implemented three years ago. Um, so overall, I think this bill is, is there's a lot of positive things in it. I think 
lowering the limit that you can donate. I think making making it so only individuals can donate is a positive thing. I don't necessarily think that limiting fundraising to the year of the municipal election is a is a positive thing. And I don't necessarily think that's actually going to level the playing field either, because I think that might actually advantage incumbents who already have the kind of Absolutely. networks that they need mm-hmm. to fundraise. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you're a, uh, you know, you're just a citizen and you're active in your community, but you want to run for municipal office and you have to challenge an incumbent. Yeah, like well, if I was going to run against yeah. Kathy Heron, Totally. I would have had to start two years ago. Never yeah. mind. Well, that's two years it. From now, we because we, we all know how hard it is and how how rare it is that incumbents get defeated in municipal elections because it's all based on name recognition. Now, there's one caveat: it allows the law will allow you to fundraise up to two thousand dollars outside of that election year period for things like brochures and material and, and material. But two thousand dollars really isn't a lot, especially it's so arbitrary because it's across the board. So we're talking about two thousand dollars for if you're running for the in the town of Rimby for city council or mayor of or, or mayor of Calgary. Hmm. Now, if you're running for mayor of Calgary, or mayor of Edmonton, there's stuff that you're going to want to do in the year advance and ahead of the election. You're probably going to want to do polling to see if you actually have a chance and to figure out what the issues are. You're probably going to want to do some focus group testing, create material. $2,000 doesn't really take you that far. That's that's not even a, no. a print budget. It's yeah. not a, you certainly can't buy polling with $2,000. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So so I think Unfortunately, I think what this what what that will do is probably drive these costs underground. So mm. people will be, will be will be making personal, just doing it personally, saying, "Oh, I'm just going to do this polling and and, and not report it." Will we see the creation of PACs? Well, that's the other that's the other question is whether this is going to lead to the creation of political action committees. Which I mean, as as I've said on the the podcast before, political money follows the path of least resistance. It's like water, right? So if if you can't donate to uh, can't donate to political or to political parties or can't donate to to candidates, you're probably going to donate to a political action committee. So it sounds like universally we are not super in favor of all these things. Kristen, what do you think? I don't think it's fair. I mean, I think, it, you know, I I don't want to see Unite Edmonton pop up as a new pack that we all get to get behind. <laughs> they um, would probably have the opposite effect. Yeah. They would spend all their time on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. They'd be really busy. I just, yeah, it just doesn't seem to me you, you should... If you're going to have a new municipal elections act, it should follow what the provincial and federal acts also do, which does not limit parties to. And I don't want to be like BC, where we have to have political parties for our municipal elections, and that's where I think this would end up going, so that they would potentially have the option of being able to campaign past one year, because that's kind of silly to me. Mm-hmm. Ryan, so, sorry, go ahead. I was going to say there's there's one other thing that I think that this this that they did doesn't that the bill doesn't really address, and that has to do with by elections. So right now the bill will limit fundraising to the election year. So candidates won't be able to start really fundraising until 2021. But what happens if there's a by-election in the meantime? How do candidates prepare for that? Is there no provision and, in the act for that? Well, there, it seems to be silent on it. And maybe they, maybe that'll be dealt with in the regulations. Maybe that will be dealt with on the municipal. Is on, the NDP just making but, this up as they go along? But, uh, but I, wanted, <laughs> I, I want to point out a, a, an example. Here in Edmonton, uh, a current city councillor is running, Mike Nickel, is running for a UCP nomination in Edmonton South. If he wins that nomination and goes on to be elected as an MLA next spring, he'll have to resign his seat on city council, which Emergy, means so he was Yeah, well, which means there'll have to be a by-election. Now, yeah. there there's this the bill appears to be silent in terms of candidates who want to prepare for by-elections and we already have one candidate who seems to be doing that for from Mike Nichols ward. Uh, Karen Tang, who placed a strong second to Mike Nichol in the 2017 election, had already registered her intent to uh, to seek election in 2021. I would take that. I would assume that she's preparing to, because it's so early, that she's she's assuming Mike Nichol, there's a chance he'll go into provincial politics and there'll be a by-election, 
well what this bill does i would argue is unless unless there's there's a provision that, that i haven't seen or unless there's something that'll be dealt with in regulations um it penalizes people who want to prepare for by-elections how how is that supposed to work and that, that's totally not clear for me right to me right now the fundraiser in me is also interested in uh, another detail that none of this is uh, will result in the tax receipt. So That's correct. So currently, provincial and federal political donations are some of the most generous tax implication of any type of charitable giving. Far better than charitable giving. So that doesn't seem fair to me either. Now, I don't know if that's a negotiation with the CRA or like who has to approve that. But when you're fundraising, actually, this is one of the changes in the current provincial rules. Now, at the nomination level, you can offer a tax receipt which is a huge advantage. Mm -hmm. You know, when municipal politicians right now, when they're fundraising, it truly is just pure charity or belief in the system. There's no, yep. mm -hmm. whereas a federal contribution or a provincial contribution, on your first hundred dollars, it's like $75. It's quite lucrative. It's, and it's, it's, it's very, very generous. Refund. It's yeah. not even a tax credit. Yeah. It's like super generous. Yeah. So yeah. that part of me, that part seems interesting too. And I wonder if maybe that could be revisited. Because um, certainly this bill sounds like it's going to need some amendments. Yeah, and then the the on the on the issue of of uh, of tax credits for municipal political donations, I know Don I Don Ives and Mayor of Edmonton brought that issue up because it is something if you want to if you want this, the municipal finance system to to mirror the provincial and the federal system, it has to mirror the provincial and federal system. And if you're not providing those incentives that exist at the other levels. Um, then I think that's pro very problematic. Mayor Iveson would also say you shouldn't call them levels of government. You should call them orders, orders of, of government. government. Yes, sorry, sorry, Don. Yes, he once uh, got mad at me at an event for saying that on stage as I was hosting it. Well, he well, was correct. He, yeah, if well. his worship <laughs> tells you to sharpen up, you better do it. God, ever since he got that stupid chalice that he wears the, the beaver pelt what yeah. a title hey his worship, worship. i know yeah. it's, it's over the top being mayor I, would be better than anything every, else just for that title I think. every time i see the mayor wearing the the big the beaver pelt what's it called thing, i feel like he should be carrying a battle axe or a broadsword <laughs> yeah so because, like because it's so huge yeah. he looks like a viking yeah. it's uh and he's very tall so he could be a viking yes mm -hmm. yeah Anyway, well, we're going to move on to the, this is the slowest lightning round we've ever done. The <laughs> next got to be more quick with yeah. the buzzer. Yeah. Boom, but, crack, lightning. Yeah, the next one is uh, we were going to talk about the former NDP MLA, newly independent Calgary East MLA, Robin Luff. Um, she was outspoken at perhaps not the most opportune time, according to the premier, and uh, booted out of caucus. According to her caucus. Yeah, way. exactly. So Here I am defending the NDP. So who wants to give us the background on this for folks listening who maybe don't know? I feel like the brain of Dave is... Uh, I'll, I'll just I'll just jump in there. Yeah. So Robin Luff, uh, MLA for Calgary East, elected in 2015. She's a school teacher. Um, she spent uh, $0 during the campaign and raised $0 during the campaign. She was the definition of a paper candidate. She's a, she was a, an orange wave candidate in 20, in 2015. And Hey, more power to her. And she spoke out, uh, last week, it was a week or two ago. She spoke out, um, uh, uh, talking about a culture of fear and intimidation in the NDP caucus talking about how she felt backbenchers were muzzled uh, and they were not allowed to properly represent their constituents in the legislature. Yep. Um, this is good stuff. The next day <laughs> she, uh, the next day she was removed, basically kicked out of the NDP caucus. Uh, it's which, hard to walk that back. Which yeah, I think at that point it was, that was pretty much the only thing that mm -hmm. it was going to happen. I know she said that uh, in her statement that she was going through some mediation with the premier's office to try to resolve her issues. I have so many jokes. I, yeah, I think I think at the point where where you publicly <coughs> come out and, and basically say your boss is is bully a bully, um, there's not really much room for you left on the team at that point. So that she was kicked out of the NDP caucus, 
is was did not come as a surprise. Um, she later said that she wasn't sure whether she was going to return to the legislature and she needed to talk to her constituents to decide what her next actions were. From what I hear, she held a town hall meeting in Calgary East uh, and she apparently will be returning to sit in the legislature as, the, as an independent MLA. Her constituents didn't say, keep getting paid as an MLA, but don't... But don't show up to do work MLA stuff. Yeah. And I, I have a... I mean, I have a lot of thoughts about this. I think that the first day that she came out, I think that there were some legitimate points around um, the culture and the norms around backbenchers and the level of party solidarity of... of the role of the party whip and basically the kind of control that we've seen um, that comes out of the premier's office. And it's not just not something that's just unique to, to Alberta. Uh, I mean, Stephen Harper in Ottawa, that was kind of the thing that he was notoriously known for was the, the amount of control that he had over, over the conservative caucus. Um, but I, so I think there's some legitimate issues around backbenchers and the independence that they might have and the control of the, that the executive branch has over the legislative branch. But that said, after the first day, things started to kind of go off the rails. She talked about um, if any NDP MLA didn't step up and corroborate her corroborate her her claims, she was going to resign, and if any of them did that Jason Kenny and Rachel Notley should resign. <laughs> That's a great maneuver. That didn't really make any sense. And, the, and she had this great quote, which I'm going to read, which was the, the mixed metaphor of the week uh, or the mixed metaphor of the month. Um, why not etch our names in the ever-evolving staircase of human betterment? Um, I mean, that sounds great. It yeah. sounds great, but I have absolutely no idea what that means. Um, that said, I'm, I'm not sure she was getting the the best political advice after the first day. I think that the first day, I think she kind of came out strong and, and, and things could have been actually quite interesting for her. But I think that it kind of, I think she lost a little bit of a lot of her legitimacy after her, uh, her actions on the second, third, fourth, fifth day. Well, and I think part of, to me, what has been frustrating is that as a result of what she said, because one of the pieces of her statement was that the premier's office had directed them that if they had any knowledge of a UCP MLA being inappropriate with with someone, that they shouldn't say anything because the NDP hadn't weren't strong in that area either. As that isn't outrageous. Yeah, and as a result of that, it has come out that two NDP MLAs have been the subject of sexual harassment allegations, and the premier has refused to name them. Yeah, and this this issue has, for whatever reason, sort of dropped off the media's attention. But that is a big deal. Are these two NDP MLAs currently running for re-election? Are these two ML? What what were they accused of? What happened? What was the process? And what I hear from a lot of people on Twitter is, "Oh well, you just want to out survivors." Absolutely not. As someone who went people through say that, that pu- to you, yeah. As someone who went, wow. who came out publicly, absolutely not. I do not want to put anyone through that. But I think we all have a right to know who those NDP MLAs were and what the process was, because it could be anyone, and it's not fair for constituents to go to vote on election day not knowing if that particular MLA is their MLA. I totally agree. And I wonder, is this a crack in the NDP wall such as it is that, that the UCP could, could exploit? Or is it, is it one of those like same, same, like we, 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 everyone sucks at this. So let's not talk about it, which is also terrible. I I also do not 
like the word exploit, I think that what is important to understand here is, I mean, you've actually seen the Alberta party and certain Alberta party reps, not necessarily MLAs, but reps go hard on this particular issue over the last couple of weeks. Um, it is important that every party take responsibility when this happens within their party. Mm-hmm. But right now, and I've seen a lot of pushback on the UCP and people want to bring up Jason Nixon and, and his history as much as they want. Jason Nixon wasn't accused of harassing someone. These two NDP MLAs happen. So we need to have a conversation about that. Yeah. Disgusting, demeaning, and dangerous were the words that Post Media columnist Don Braid used to describe uh, a speech by Justice Center for Constitutional Freedoms President John Carpe uh, to a crowd of conservative conservative activists in Calgary at a Rebel Media event, where Carpe, uh, in talking about defeating totalitarianism, um, drew comparisons between the pride flag and the swastika flag of Nazi Germany and the hammer and sickle flag of the Soviet Union. Um, I think vile was was uh, was the word used to describe, by, by a lot of people used to describe these types of comments. Uh, Carpe apologized after he was called out, uh, but now questions remain about how quickly or if uh, Carpe, a member of the United Conservative Party, a UCP activist who spoke at the UCP's policy convention uh, against, or I guess in favor of a motion, uh, against gay-straight alliances uh, in Alberta schools, uh, whether he will be kicked out. Um, UCP leader Jason Kenney, who has been in recent weeks pretty quick to pounce on in, in reaction to um, comment or in reaction to revelations that uh, alleged white nationalists, white supremacists had uh, had been working on his leadership campaign and had been involved in the UCP. Um, and talking about how they would be removed from the UCP membership list um, has really been what I would describe as soft peddling on John Carpe and, and these comments. Even though he denounced the comments, he's been soft peddling on, on how, what, basically whether he, he'll be allowed to remain in the United Conservative Party, which I don't really think is a very good look at all for Jason Kenney. Um, it does seem like he's trying to, try, trying to soft pedal, trying to avoid... Uh, avoid having to deal with this issue. He said it's up to the UCP board. Um, but I mean, my question is, is, is why Kenny wasn't more aggressive with this? Why, why wasn't he, why wasn't his response that the, you know, the UCP board has to remove, ha- has to vote on removing memberships, but I, as the party leader will be, uh, will be personally moving a motion to remove John Carpe because this type of, these types of, uh, this type of commentary, this type of, of behavior is, is not acceptable in, in, uh, in any conservative party or any political party. It, this is a really awful one. Um, thoughts, Kristen? They're twofold. I mean, first, you know, I absolutely don't believe that views like Mr. Carp, Carplays or I always mispronounce his name like it's an Apple app belong in the UCP. But secondary, and I think this is the most important thing, Jason Kenney has said, you know, I'm not going to legislate on social issues, but that's not enough. He needs to actually really step up and the party needs to step up as it relates to LGBTQ issues. They need to talk about how they're going to work with this community. It's not enough just to say this isn't something we're going to touch. You actually have to get engaged in this beyond just applying to be in the pride parade because this is a community and a perspective in our province and and it matters to them to hear your voice on this. You can't just say, you know, I don't agree with this perspective. You actually have to say, this is what I'm going to do for your community or how I'm going to work with your community. And, you know, if I was advising Jason Kenney, which I am certainly not, that would be my number one piece of advice to him. 
Ryan, should should John Carpe get kicked out of the United Conservative Party? Well, Dave and I were on CTV on was it Friday morning? Friday morning. We yeah. Asked that, and yeah, I think so. I mean, I, I need to put down a couple markers here first. So, first of all, um, to compare some of the most murderous regimes in human history to the struggle for equality and equity is appalling, <clears throat> especially for someone who's a trained lawyer and <laughs> and is very smart and knows exactly what the power of words is. John Carpe would be the first one to tell you that words matter. <laughs> and that's why it was such a difficult thing to have to see happening because it's like, well, what are you... What are you doing? This isn't the first time someone has made comments um, that might have been meant in some esoteric way, but are, you know, just not compatible with modern discourse. So I make no defense of the comments. And I think at this point, the board should um, make a motion to remove his membership. However, now that I've said that, there is some reservation that a political party is held accountable for private members speaking at non-party functions things like that. Now I realize when you're talking about comparing the pride flag to Nazis, these are exceptional circumstances, but I think all parties should be a little bit hesitant and uncomfortable with policing what their members say in non-official events. So I wish he wasn't talking about, it's like that joke. What do we say? The Godwin's law that eventually any online debate becomes about Nazis because. And that's when you lose. Yeah. That's when you're losing. As soon as you compare anything other than Hitler to Hitler, you are, you've lost the argument. So Mm -hmm. I, I definitely make no defense of those comments. I'm not sure if we want to get to the point where Rachel Notley is personally held accountable for every comment that an NDP member makes. Mm-hmm. Um, and the same with Jason Kenney. So it's tough. you know. It's, I don't think it's a question of holding Jason Kenney accountable. I think it's him showing that he's a leader of the United Conservative Party. And I take umbrage with the idea that, um, you know, you, that what you say in private is... is should be viewed differently. Well, this it, wasn't even private, to be fair. Well, yeah. And it so was I, a rebel event. Yeah, I think let's keep that in mind. Speaking in front of 600 people. And it was a political, the rebel is a political entity. But there's an important distinction here. It was not a UCP event. Sure. The UCP mm-hmm. did not support that event. It was, in fact, marketed as this alt, alternative, I'm not going to say alt-right, this alternative con- conservative convention. Well, that, that raises flags, too. But we, yeah, but, but the difference is, specifically, CPC and UPC were not participants. And if you read the promos, they were mouthing off a bit about it. Maxime Bernier's comments were, "Well, the other, the mainstream conservative parties don't have the conservative cojones it, to come to this." But, but the the other bit, the other piece that that fits into the into this this issue is that only a week before Jason Kenney had announced that the UCP was going to create quote a, like I think it was a database of extremists, a, uh, a basket of de- deplorables, a, yeah, <laughs> a binder of deplorables. A, a binder, a binder <laughs> of extremists, a binder of data, yeah, a database of extremists to keep people with extreme political views i'm assuming like like those who would compare the pride flag to swastikas um out of the united conservative party so well, jason kenny kind of backed himself into the corner on the on on, on this issue is is he said it he made those announcements that uh, that announcement the week before when we were talking about the alleged white nationalists who had worked on his leadership campaign and then the week after i'm sure he didn't expect that he'd be dealing with having to deal with controversial comments that John Carpe UCP member said, John Carpe, who's, you know, been a political ally of Jason, with Jason, of Jason Kenney since the 1990s. They're both very involved in, in social conservative political circles in Calgary. Um, they were both, uh, both were, they both worked for the Canadian taxpayers federation. They Carpe was a wild Rose party candidate in 2012. Um, I mean, you know, they're very much in, in similar political circles, so they know each other. Um, and I think that's probably one of the reasons why we're seeing Kenny 
having a hard time re- hard, hard time reacting as decisively on this because it is he is a Carpe is one of Kenny's political allies and it and when you think about the people the kind of coalition of of social conservative groups that have Kenny has built and was part of his leadership campaign when he ran for the PC party and part of his leadership campaign when he ran for the UCP leadership and and part of the 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 group that's that's uh, agitating and 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 backing him going into the next election you have groups like the people like like people who would support what Carpe is doing around gay straight alliances around uh, abortion issues um I've to groups like parents for choice and education um groups like the Wilberforce project and right now like we we know there's the their active social conservative activists who are part of that coalition and and Carpe is part of that part of that world and I mean yeah no he I think that absolutely there are all of these different and he Kenny did paint himself into a corner with that promise and you know he has now backed down from that saying you know it's not up to me it's up to the board to make these decisions but I also think it's really important that we stop tying every single person who says something crazy who does have a connection to Jason Kenny 100% to Jason Kenny because again to build on what Ryan said earlier we can't do that with everyone to to the left either or or saying that something you said 10 years ago is still relevant to now I think and because I think all of this is a distraction from issues that actually matter to Albertans on a regular basis not that the, the swastika thing obvious that is that's terrible and we need to build we but we need to start having conversations about what is relevant to Albertans now? And how do we work on this now as opposed to the constant debate about when is Jason Kenny going to kick this person out of the used to be caucus or do this or do that? Because it distracts from so much of this. And again, going back to what I said earlier, this is why it's important for Jason Kenny to actually say something on the LGBTQ issue. He can call out this guy or the next guy or whoever else, but where does he actually stand on these issues? And that's the part that seems to be being missed from this is having that conversation about what mm. happens now and where do we go forward in terms of where your party stands and what you want to do. Yeah, I, I, I think that's, I think that's fair. And, you know, this isn't, this shouldn't be the only issue that gets covered in Alberta politics. And I don't think it is, but I think that, I mean, I, I give voters and I give Albertans more, more credit than, than a lot of people do. I think we can, I think we can, we can talk about extremist views and the role and, and the role that extreme extremists have, have and don't have mm-hmm. in, in politics and focus on real issues at the same time. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's a one or one or other thing. I mean, I saw a tweet from Heather Forsyth talking about how, oh, well, you know, the NDP, if, if they didn't spend so much time talking about the extremists in the UCP, maybe they'd do better job with the economy. Well, you know what? People are smarter than I think, you know, that that tweet from Heather Forsyth gives people credit for. I think people, I think Albertans can talk about healthcare and they can talk about education and they can talk about jobs in the economy and pipelines and all that kind of stuff and climate change and also talk about how we need to not allow extremists to run the, basically run the shop. Oh yeah. And a hundred percent, I, sorry, I cut Ryan off. No, go ahead. But I think, um, the problem is, is that when, when it comes to the way that the press specifically and, and people deal with Jason Kenney, it's always that question of do you do you reject this do you dismiss this but it's never and no one pushes him 100% to go beyond that we won't legislate on social issues okay fine don't legislate on social issues what what is your platform on this and how are you going to move forward and that's where i think we sometimes we get too stuck in that quagmire of gotcha politics and we don't look at actually moving into calling people out and asking them what their platform is going to be on really important issues to a lot of albertans mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that, and I think I think that's fair, and, and we are in an era. I mean, this is the, you know, it is the social media era of gotcha politics. Mm-hmm. It's, um, you know, we have on both the the NDP. I mean, the NDP spends a lot of time digging around 
and trying to dig up UCP things that UCP nomination candidates and UCP candidates have said, and and the UCP has been doing the same thing with on on the NDP side. Um, I mean, I do find I, I do find it troubling when you have politicians who say, and this was this was an issue I had with Brian, Brian Jean a few years ago, and then later on Derek Fildebrandt, basically saying that you know I didn't get into politics for social issues. I'm not going to deal with mm-hmm. social issues. What like almost everything every function of government has an impact on so on some kind of social issue. I mean, it's not all about economics and about about just mm-hmm. pure balance sheets uh, where you're talking about, I mean, the, the, the core functions of a provincial government. I mean, you look at the, the, the largest items that the provincial government spends money on healthcare and education. Those, those, that's that's a so those are social issues even 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 talking about roads talking about transportation talking about public safety those are all all social issues so to say that we're not going to legislate on social issues we're not going to touch social issues is just a lie because if if you're not going to talk about social issues then then uh, then what what are you doing trying to get into government but i'm not sure what the exact quote you're referring to is but stephen harper said we're not going to legislate on abortion and part of the reason was you have to rewind to like since the year 2000 for conservatives, these issues have been trap doors that lead to immediate death. And we, since 2000, I remember an interview with Stockwell Days later with Wendy Mesley and in, in an hour she asked, talked about abortion literally the whole time. And so maybe you would say, well, you guys need to figure out your positions. But I would also say like we on the conservative side have been traumatized by this issue. So now we, flailing around trying to figure out a way to also get to talk about everything else we say things like well what derek said i mean his statement was dumb that it, what did he say it's not I even his say it was top. probably it was a tweet as well so it's yeah. you know he said it's not even back, my back top to 100 media. issues or something but like for an example of how i wish we would pivot away from this i'm a big fan of the fintech company wealth simple and it's funny their marketing is exactly what a conservative party that i was in charge of would do they are trying to cultivate in the millennial generation this culture of financial education and personal finance. And so they do all these really interesting articles. They talk about why it's important to have a savings account, why it's important to invest, all this stuff. And I was saying to someone the other day, and I think I put it on Twitter, why is Wealth Simple better at talking about our issues than the conservative parties are? And so like when we talk about the curriculum review, the hot button issue, the NDP hits us because we're talking about the sexual component. And that is important and that's a conversation, but I wish we were also talking about personal finance. Like being a conservative shouldn't mean that I'm against a group of people or for a group of people. And, but we, our fault and the other side, everybody involved, we never get past these, these issues. And I'm not suggesting they aren't important because they totally are, but there are other things in the curriculum other than sexual education. And so social, like you said, Dave, it's all social issues. So, of course, we're going to legislate on social issues because that includes everything. That's what the provincial government does. But I can, I'm not suggesting Jason Kenney felt panicked. I haven't spoken to him about this. But I can relate to a sense of doom and dread last week when this came out. That, like, oh, my good grief, here we go again. All we're talking about is Soldiers of Odin and GSAs. And we're not talking about the things, the other things that also matter. And the database comment I'm not suggesting Jason Kenney panic, but I too have gone through a list of possible solutions, including tarring and feathering and, um, you know, just out. Shoot, shooting someone off in a rocket ship to the sun. Yeah. Because, you know, for example, the parents choice for education group, 
they probably have some principled stands around parental roles in child children's lives, but they get they go beyond that into other topics, which takes away their credibility up back to the fundamental issue. And it's kind of a metaphor for conservatives in the last 20 years. So the path forward, I the reason why I remain in the UCP and the CPC is because I think it's important to continue to drive down the main street of conservatism, that it's not about telling groups you're not part of it. It's like a broader thing than that. It's about personal empowerment. It, and that doesn't mean taking away power from other groups. So... Yeah, it was a really bad week and kind of discouraging, to be honest. And I was a Wild Rose staffer in 2012, so I, I know what happens when this becomes the narrative. But wh- there's no path forward. There's no easy path forward. You just have to keep conservatives who care about being moderate and inclusive and big tent have to continue to just fight that fight. And so um, that's what a lot of the conservatives I know are doing. You just have to keep going down the QE2 when it's snowing. Nice. Thank you. Watch out for that black ice. Well, team, it looks like we have gone a little late again (laughs) and uh, ran out of time for the mailbag. But there was one sitting there in the mailbag from last week that we didn't get to from uh, one Kristen Rayworth. (laughs) So I guess we can't avoid that one. Yeah. You're here. You get to ask the question. Yay. Uh, So my question was, how much of a difference do policy conventions make in what a party's platform ultimately looks like? Ooh, that's a good one. So I I, I can speak to, I've seen it a few times, at least in the different conservative parties. I have not been on a platform committee or a policy committee personally, but I know that it does play a real role. Like clearly the party platform is not written at convention by 3000 members Mm -hmm. or however members the other parties have, but they really do refer back. And this is why party policy declarations have to be quite broad. They shouldn't be too prescriptive because it's more about principles. So I've had friends on the platform committee in the last couple of federal elections, and they would refer back to the document and make sure that it ties in because the leader would ask that because leaders take this stuff pretty seriously. This is their mandate. But at the end of it all, there is a small group of people who advise the leaders who write the platform. And I think the current system, I tend to like our current system, and I think in many ways it gets this one right too, that they, it's up to members to hold them accountable, but it's up to the leader to bring his or her particular platform to the voters. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I mean, policy conventions are, are a place where, I mean, the members can, I mean, the members can bring the issues that they feel are important. They have an opportunity to bring them forward to the policy convention. It also gives the leaders of the leadership of the party an opportunity to gauge where the activists are and where, where, you know, in terms of the issues that are important to them. I recently attended the NDP convention here in Edmonton or in Edmonton a couple weeks ago. And what I found interesting was how much of it was an opportunity for cabinet ministers and MLAs to test talk their talking points at the mm-hmm. mic because it really was that 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 was really a kind of a feature of, of, of the convention. But that convention was a we've talked about this before mm-hmm. a tightly scripted exercise, very stage managed mm-hmm. yeah. exercise in political yep. communications. It wasn't a free for all policy nope. throwdown like the UCP one was. Yeah. And yep. we've seen the pros and cons of each approach. Yeah, and and I mean just like the UCP, uh, you know, a lot of the stuff that, that was talked about and, and the, the members brought forward or tried to bring forward at the prior to prioritization meetings, policy priority meetings the day before the convention started, 
um, or at least the day before it was open to the media, um, you know, a lot of those things might not make it actually into the platform um, because there is a platform That's committee true. that, that, you know, that decides these are our top five issues because, you know, you know, election campaigns are also a marketing exercise. And if you have a, an election platform, if you're trying to sell an election platform that has, you know, 500, uh, 500 points in it, um, everything from, you know, aqua agriculture to, uh, you know, to... What about salmon policy? To salmon policy. Oh, man, we had a question about salmon policy. Oh, God. We'll get back to that on our next <laughs> that, episode. What, you were supposed to do your homework, Dave. Yeah, well, yeah. Uh, we, we've run out of time today. <laughs> uh, so, yeah. So, I mean, you know, the policy conventions is an opportunity for people, and it's also an opportunity for people who uh, who are who consider themselves policy wonks and who are really engaged in that part of the political process, which is not everybody uh, who is, who's involved in political parties. It gives them a, an opportunity to have their say as well and, and feel like they've con- had a meaningful contribution to the process. And that's, you know, that's also like a important part of political parties. So policy conventions influence party platforms, but they're not, they obviously don't become the party platform mm-hmm. is what you're saying. Yeah. Like yes. lead- leaders and, and members will pick and choose what's, what is the the issue of the day or the series of issues of the day that are going to resonate with their voters, right? Yeah. Is that, mm-hmm. that yeah. what I say? Because also, I mean, at the same time as the party's holding a policy convention, politics is is, is existing outside of the policy convention mm-hmm. and MLAs and the parties and the leaders are, are, are already focusing on issues um, that they feel are, are important and they're building the narratives that they want to go forward. And also... I mean, it's important to remember that the, the big issues that come up at a party policy convention might not be the big issues that are in the minds of front, my front and center mm-hmm. in, of uh, the minds of Albertans. Because yeah. people who are involved in political parties, you know, while they are awesome and an integral part of the political process, they're not necessarily, well, they're not the majority at all. Yeah. They're the extreme mm-hmm. minority. Um, but but they might have, because they're so engaged and so involved, they might have different, you know, different perspective on things. Does that answer your, your question, Kristen? It does. Thank you so much. Great. Thank, thank you for the question. I'm glad we got a chance to answer it. <laughs> and that's it for this episode. Thanks so much for tuning in. Huge thanks to the Alberta Podcast Network, powered by ATB, for supporting the show. And thank you to Kristen Rayworth for joining us this episode. Uh, We've been wanting to have you on for a while, and your perspectives and insights were really interesting. Thank you for having me. Send us your feedback or ask any questions you have for our next episode. We promise to get to the questions in our next episode. Maybe. Maybe. (laughs) Uh, You can get us on Twitter at at DaveBerta or on the DaveBerta Facebook page, or you can email us at podcast at DaveBerta.ca. And make sure to keep an eye on uh, on DaveBerta.ca. We're soon going to be launching our Best of Alberta Politics 2018 survey. Uh, We had a huge response and a lot of fun doing the survey at the end of 2017. So we're looking forward to to launching the same survey and we're looking forward to your submissions and your votes for categories ranging from Best Alberta MLA, Best Opposition MLA, Best Cabinet Minister to a new category for this year, special for the next provincial election. best new candidate or new new candidate to watch in 2019. Yeah. Thanks a lot for tuning in.